Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, I've mentioned it before. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Patriot. I kind of think Braveheart, Patriot, those those kind of movies like that. I just love that that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen The Patriot, then uh, then I do question uh, the legitimacy of your patriotism as a as an American. You need to watch The Patriot if you haven't. And it's out been out for like twenty years. So uh, so spoiler alert, we win. Okay. Um, it's set during the American Revolution. It, it follows Mel Gibson's character, Benjamin Martin. He leads the Continental Militia, and he's just a bad dude, right? I mean, he carries around an Indian tomahawk, and, uh, and don't mess with him when he's got his tomahawk. But as most war movies do, this, this movie ends with this climactic final battle where good triumphs over evil, where Americans triumph over British. It's a great ending to the movie. The movie battles actually patterned after a very real, very consequential battle in the American War for Independence, the Battle of Calpins. Now, if you're not a history nut, that's fine, but, uh, so just bear with me because I do get into this a little bit. But if you look at the Battle of Calpins on paper, it would seem that this little battle over in upstate South Carolina was relatively inconsequential. On paper, there are only about 2,500 to 3,000 troops involved. And that's not many in the grand scheme of a, of a fight like that. Just right over here, that little battle that took place in our backyard had over 125,000 troops involved. So just uh, uh, to understand the scale of the difference between those battles. And again, it was in a relatively insignificant area, upstate South Carolina. If you look on the map, there's, it's not close to anything. Closest major town is Spartanburg, and, and that's not a, a, a significant city. You know, no offense for those who are from Spartanburg. However, if you look at the history books, the Battle of Calpins was a decisive victory in the American War for Independence. Historians recognize that the British defeat at Calpins set into motion the events that would ultimately end the war there at the Battle of Yorktown just 10 months later. Sometimes history takes time for the full significance of events to play out. On Friday, we, we took some time to consider Jesus as the Lamb of God. If you missed our Good Friday service, then uh, I would encourage you next year, make Good Friday part of your, part of your Easter weekend experience. It's something that you need to, you need to make a, a high priority. Um, but we talked about Jesus. He was the, the sacrifice, paid the price for our sins. He was the substitute that, that took our place and received God's full wrath against sin. But we also understand that it's not the end of the story. Now, keep in mind, that whole story of Jesus' death and resurrection, it really took place at a somewhat of an inconsequential time. You know, we, today is the, we're in year 2022, and contrary to what they, what they teach today, we can't, we mark time by Jesus, right? I know they say it's a common error and before, or common error, that's right, it is a common error. Uh, we, they talk about CE and BCE in school today. I'm old school, and I think it's still BCAD. A.D. means in the year of our Lord. B.C. means before Christ. So, so civilization marks time by Jesus. But that only started about 500 years after Jesus' birth. So it was an inconsequential time. It was a fairly inconsequential place. 
Now, Jerusalem, of course, we people in the Bible, we recognize Jerusalem as a major city. But in the Roman Empire, Jerusalem wasn't that big of a deal. It was on the fringe. It was on the, the frontier of the empire. It wasn't the center of philosophy or the center of politics or the center of science. You don't get any of that stuff out of Jerusalem. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, the number of people involved is pretty small, all things considered. The only thing that happened on that inconsequential weekend in Jerusalem, if the only thing that happened that weekend was the crucifixion of a religious nonconformist, then we don't even read about it in the history books. If all that happened is that a guy named Jesus, a, a teacher, a, a radical teacher, if the only thing that happened is that a radical teacher was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem, it doesn't even ping our radars. But that's not the end of the story, is it? The first shot of the American Revolutionary War was known as what? A shot heard around the world, right? The shot heard around the world. But I would argue this, that the consequences of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have had consequences that have touched every continent, that have impacted every generation, and they continue to impact the generations today. No other event in human history has had the impact that Jesus' death and resurrection has had. The fact of the matter is this. Jesus was not just the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. We rejoice in the fact that he was, but we understand that on that first resurrection day, that Sunday morning, that Jesus emerged victorious over the grave, not as the Lamb ready for slaughter, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, victorious over his enemies. And it is good for us to take time today to reflect on Jesus as the Lamb. But this is Resurrection Day. And I would ask you today to behold the Lion. We turn our attention to the book of Philippians today, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi there in the New Testament. And I would invite you, and as I read Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5, if you would stand with me. As I read Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul's counsel to the church at Philippi is good for us as well. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for the good news of Jesus. I thank you that Jesus is the name that is above every name and that one day every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. We pray today as we consider Jesus the victor, Jesus the lion, Jesus the conqueror, who has conquered death, who has done it on our behalf and extended to us the promise of salvation that we would reflect not on just Jesus the lamb that was sacrificed, but Jesus, the lion who conquered. Thank you again, Father, for this day, this remarkable day of celebration. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated.
this passage in Philippians, it really is one of the clearest passages in the Bible that details the, the remarkable events that transpired in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explains it. But even though his language is clear, we as people today recognize that grasping the, the magnitude of what he is saying, well, it really does take a lifetime to comprehend, right? I mean, if you're a Christian today, you understand in principle the things that Paul is saying, but mining the depths of what Paul is saying here, and you'll figure it out one day when you cross over into glory. Just consider what Paul says about Jesus' equality with God. Again, we understand that in principle what that means. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We understand the words. We understand what is being said here. But we also recognize here that Jesus did not tightly cling to that position. Paul says he gladly left that position to take on the likeness and nature of man. In a very real sense, the Creator chose to serve the creatures in what Christ did. One of the greatest English-speaking preachers in history, Charles Spurgeon, said it this way. He says, you and I can have no idea of how high an honor it is to be equal with God. Well, that's truth. How can we therefore measure the descent of Christ when our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came? The depth to which he descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached. And the height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought. He goes on. Do not, however, forget the glory that Jesus laid aside for a while. Remember that he is, the very God, he is very God of very God, and that he dwelt in the highest heaven with his Father. Yet though he was infinitely rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might be rich. Paul says the words. We are able to understand the, the words, the vocabulary, the, the syntax, the structure of his sentences. We can understand all of that. But I'll tell you what, it's beyond our ability to grasp the magnitude of what we're reading here, of a Savior who was equal with God, but who was willing to, to hold that back in order to take on flesh and be our substitute and be our Savior. And even though we can't understand and grasp the magnitude of what's being said, we can understand something of the consequences of what Paul is saying. Paul here speaks of Jesus' humiliation. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Paul says he humbled himself through his obedience. Now, of course, we, we can't help but consider the cross, that terrible way in which Jesus was, was, was murdered on our behalf. But before we ever get to the cross, we have to recognize that Jesus' life was a life of, of humiliation. Consider the fact that he was equal with God. He dwelled in heaven with the Father, but he spent 30 earth years in waiting before his ministry ever began. The, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, took on flesh and lived 30 years in flesh in our world before the first miracle, before the first teaching, before the Sermon on the Mount was ever preached, Jesus spent 30 years as a human. When he began his ministry, he didn't surround himself with the, 
the learned, the, the priest, the politician. He didn't surround himself with the popular. He didn't surround himself with the powerful. Instead, Jesus surrounded himself with, with fishermen and tax collectors. We, we might recognize that Jesus surrounded himself with just regular guys, guys that you would see at the restaurant or at the, at the, at the coffee shop, guys you'd see at the factory, guys you'd work with at, at work, just regular, ordinary guys. But his submission to the Father in this life is not the end of his obedience. Becoming a man was, was humbling. Taking on the nature of a servant was even more humbling. But Jesus went further. He humbled himself to the extent of being willing to die like a common criminal on a cross. But it was not for crimes that he died, at least his crimes. He died for hours. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus even declared this of himself in John chapter 10, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Jesus' death, we see him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see him as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Reflecting on Jesus' death, one of the church's early leaders, Athanasius, said it this way, He, the life of all, our Lord and Savior, did not arrange the manner of his own death, lest he should seem to be afraid of some other kind. No, he accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others, a death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. Paul goes on to remind us that there's more to the story. The defeat that Athanasius speaks of is the exaltation that Paul speaks of here in Philippians. You ready? It's what you showed up to hear today. This is what you came for today, to hear these words. Jesus conquered the grave and rose victorious. That's it. That's why you got dressed up today. That's what you showed up to hear. Jesus conquered the grave and rose victorious. And ladies and gentlemen, that has consequences for the rest of your life and beyond. He humbled himself to the point of death, but God raised him from the dead. He died as the lamb, but he rose as the lion. And he is now eternally victorious. And we know that to be true. You read it on paper, though. It may not seem like much. On paper, this is what we read. An obscure religious nonconformist was crucified, just like the countless of other victims of Rome's brutality. He died in a frontier, hand, a frontier town at the hands of a relatively inconsequential bureaucrat. Who's Pontius Pilate again? His ragtag band of blue-collar followers scattered when he was killed. On the third day after his death, 
a conspiracy began to circulate that his followers reconvened and stole the body to make it look like he'd been resurrected. I mean, that was the official story, right? That's what the official circulated. That's what they said happened. That was the story that they told. That was the official story, the end, full stop. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not the end because this isn't just on paper. It is real life. What happened, what really and ultimately transpired that morning in the cemetery is what Paul describes here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen to it again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus, that obscure religious nonconformist, He was crucified, and now he has the name that is above every other name. Let that settle for a minute. He has the name that is above every other name. There is no politician. There is no judge. There is no celebrity. There is no philosopher. There is no guru. There is no general, there is no religious leader, there is no business leader, there is no author, there is no scholar, there is no university president, there is no coach, there is no athlete, and in today's vernacular, there is no social media influencer who has a greater name than the name of Jesus. Jesus already told us that he has all authority, and Paul affirms that right here. Because this name that is above every name, it has a really peculiar effect on people. At this name, Paul says, everyone will bow. All will bow. All the knees will bow. Now think about that for a moment. Every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. I was thinking about that statement. And it occurred to me, it occurred to me that there is not a human being on the planet for whom I will gladly bow the knee. Now think about it. I mean, there's not a human being on this planet for whom I would willingly take a knee except for the day that I proposed to my spouse. I took a knee that day. But not again. There's no one that I would willingly take a knee in a, in a pose of worship for. You could bring me today before the most powerful person on the planet, and my response will never be to take a knee. I don't care who it is. I mean, I'll certainly show respect to the people of their position. I mean, I'm not going to run up and hug the Queen of England. You know, I'm not going to meet the American president, whoever it may be, and give him a little baseball tap. I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show him the respect or her the respect that is due their position. If I met some tribal leader in Africa or South America for whom handshakes were offensive, I'm not going to extend my hand. I'm going to show them the respect that their position deserves. But there is no one for whom I would gladly and willingly take a knee. But this Jesus, who has conquered death, let me tell you that if I stood before Jesus today, I wouldn't hesitate to drop to my knees. 
And I'll tell you, I wouldn't stop there because if I met that Jesus today, I'll go ahead and fall to my face before him. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and I'm happy to be first in line. (laughs) If I were to see the face of the one who took my place, who died on that cross for me, gladly will I fall to my face before him. But I would do so as a follower, one who has gladly received the gift of salvation that has been extended to me. I would do so as one who recognized that he has been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. But Paul says that every knee should bow, not just in the friendly knees. That means that there are countless men and women in history who will gladly fall to their knees in adoration of the one who saved them. But there will be countless more who will fall to their knees when they recognize who it is that they have rejected. Spurgeon said this, he said, In heaven, in earth, and hell, all knees bend before him, and every tongue confesses that he is God. If not now, yet in the time that is to come, this shall be carried out, that every creature of God's making shall acknowledge his Son to be God over all, blessed forever. Amen. As I consider this one who is the greatest... As I behold this lion of the tribe of Judah, I would much rather fall on my knees and confess that he is Lord as his friend than as his enemy. Because he is Lord. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, takes us into the heavenly realm like no other book of the Bible does. It gives us a glimpse, not just of our eternal home, but also how God will bring this home to a fitting close. Interestingly enough, we see Jesus... Not just as the lamb, but we also see Jesus as the lion. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, we read these words. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, no one was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John, he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found to be worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The only one worthy was Jesus. He is the lion and he is the lamb. What was on this scroll as it's opened, the judgments of God are revealed. And the only one who could reveal it, the only one with the authority, was the lion, who was also the lamb, who also just happens to be Lord. Which leads to a very important question today. Is he Lord over you? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Not just an acknowledgement of his authority. There's the demons acknowledge he has authority. They recognize who he is. Not just a recognition of his truth claims that what he said makes sense. But have you given him absolute rule and reign over your life? Has he been, have you declared him Lord over you? 
You say, Pastor, I don't, I don't know. What's the clearest indicator that he has reigned over your life? Where Paul already told us back in Philippians chapter 2, he said in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because what happens when you submit yourself to Jesus, when you submit yourself to his rule, when you submit yourself to his reign, when you submit yourself to his lordship over your life, you begin to recognize something profound. You recognize that the pattern of your life It's not some politician, it's not some author, it's not some scholar, it's not some philosopher, it's not some actor, it's not some celebrity. The pattern set for your life is none other than the example that is given to us by Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says. And what Paul gives us is Jesus' example of perfect submission and perfect humility. Because if Jesus is Lord over your life, then that Lord, that ruler, that king, that one who reigns over you, he's also your daily example for how you should live, how you should love, how you should give, how you should serve, how you should care for one another. He becomes your daily example. You know, we, we mark time by Jesus. We talk about the years in terms of A.D., in the, in the year of our Lord. And over the course of those years, we understand those years are made up of days. And maybe the days of your week this week were not all that consequential. You went to work or went to school and did what you were supposed to do day in and day out. And likelihood is, is if your days weren't all that consequential, you may not remember what happened on Monday or what happened on Tuesday. Those days may blur together because those days weren't anything terribly significant. But I would tell you that there are three days in history that have changed the world. The first is Jesus' birth, the incarnation of God, the humbling of Jesus taking on flesh. We call it Christmas today. But I would tell you that the day that Jesus was born was a a world-changing day in which God took on flesh to dwell among us, the the Word becoming flesh and dwelling in our midst. The second day is Jesus' death. We celebrated Friday, if you can celebrate such a thing. We remembered Jesus' death on Friday, the Lamb becoming the sacrifice, the Lamb spilling His blood that we might be delivered from our sin. And then we gather today on this Easter Sunday in which we remember in a special way the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know he was killed on Friday, and on Sunday he rose again. His birth, his death, his resurrection are three days that have changed the world. But I will tell you this. There is yet a day that will forever and ultimately transform history. It is a day in which we live, in which we look forward to, in which we dwell with anticipation. And it is the day of his return. We live today as people who have been changed by Jesus' birth, by his death, and by his resurrection. But we live today as men and women with the expectation of this fourth great day that will indeed change forever. And it is the day in which he returns. And I would ask you today, as we conclude, you're here on Easter. You understand the something of the significance of the resurrection. And even if you're not a Christian today, you recognize that there's something about this day. It's different from other days. You, you recognize Good Friday. There's something different about that Friday than, than most Fridays. You understand there's something about it. But men and women, I would tell you to look to the fourth day and make sure that you're ready 
for that day that will indeed change eternity. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Jesus, for his conquest over death, his glorious resurrection. I thank you, Father, for the fact that we as God's people can come together on this day to celebrate particularly. But Lord, any time we gather on Sunday is a day in which we remember the resurrection of Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that you might help us to live not just as, as Good Friday people, people who are keenly aware of Jesus' sacrifice, that we would live not just as resurrection people, as Sunday morning people, keenly aware of Jesus' conquest over death, but that we today might live as people who are ever mindful of the fourth day, that day of his return, and as we wait for that Savior to reappear. May we be found faithful. May we be found busy. May we be found actively working for the kingdom of God. And God, I would pray that in these next few moments as we worship together, that if there's any in this room under the sound of my voice who maybe they acknowledge the truth of Jesus, maybe they recognize the significance of Jesus, but they've not surrendered themselves to Jesus, they've not submitted to Jesus as Lord, they've not confessed their sinfulness and called on Christ as Savior. And that today, Lord, you would move in the hearts of those in the room who this day need to trust in Jesus so that they are ready for that fourth day when it should come. God, I pray you'd move in our midst now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.